Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday Three Martini Lunch. Still trying to figure out exactly how we're classifying these three martinis. The first one we're pretty sure is good. I think the second two are crazy. And then we definitely have a... Champagne toast in honor of the late Senator Bob Dole, three-time presidential candidate as well. So much to say about his life, and we'll do that towards the end of the podcast. But, uh, Jim, we figured we needed to follow up on the Chris Cuomo situation since we talked about it, I believe, in two different stories last week. One, when the revelations came out from the New York Attorney General's report about how active Cuomo had been in his brother's damage control operation. And then, of course, when CNN uh, suspended him indefinitely, there had been some signs from Brian Stelter and others that, uh, look, this will probably just last through the holidays. A few weeks from now, it's all going to blow over and he'll probably be back in his chair. Not the case. Over the weekend, CNN announcing that it is terminating Chris Cuomo uh, immediately. Professionally, that is, not uh, personally. But uh, Brian Stelter brought in to uh, report on that, which is you know awkward for your own people. But if you had done that in the first place, it might not have built to this point. Nonetheless, Stelter explaining why, unlike Jeffrey Tubin and some other folks at CNN, Chris Cuomo did not survive this time. Ultimately, this is a matter of journalistic ethics and about journalistic standards, about what CNN could tolerate over time. And although there was an acknowledgement that family comes first and Cuomo was in an incredibly difficult situation as his brother was being challenged, was being scrutinized and eventually had to resign due to sexual harassment allegations. That was a very difficult situation for Cuomo. CNN stood by him for months. Uh, But something emerged this week and we don't know exactly what that did lead to his termination earlier today. Well, way to bury the lead there, Brian. Yeah, something came up. We don't know if it was directly from that report. There's other reports out there about his personal conduct, whether it's related to uh, an issue that Jim had talked about last week from back at Cuomo's days at ABC. I don't know. But, uh, Jim, uh, CNN does have a breaking point with personnel, and and it happened with Chris Cuomo. Uh, We don't like to dance on the end of people's uh, professional contracts. It's, It's very difficult to lose your job. But as we also said last week, there are standards you need to uphold, and it's pretty clear that over and over, uh, in multiple areas, Chris Cuomo failed. Greg, we're left wondering what the straw was that broke the camel's back. And I think one of the things that's kind of fascinating about this is there were so many points earlier on where, at minimum, somebody, Jeff Zucker or somebody at CNN could have said, you know, it was kind of funny the first few times we had Chris Cuomo and interviewing Andrew Cuomo about the pandemic and they started joking mom always liked you first and, and all that. but once he got to the prop comedy it's like okay maybe we should have make anderson cooper this is a job for you jake tapper let's get uh you know any one of these other good uh anchors who just aren't related to the governor to ask tougher questions and to not create this conflict of interest uh once Andrew Cuomo was credibly accused of multiple women, then Chris Cuomo said, well, I'm not going to talk about my brother anymore. So you're there for all the good news. You're, you're there to tout how terrific he is and how he's, you know, oh, by the way, he was terrible on the pandemic. And he sent old people back into senior citizen centers and into nursing homes and such while the virus was still floating around out there. and ended up costing, you know, a policy choice that they initially you know, denied, then they hid. Um, I mean, one of the things that was really fascinating about Andrew Cuomo now is if you go back a year ago and if you go back 18 months ago, 
so many people in the mainstream media were telling us that Andrew Cuomo is the country, the leader this country needs, the hero of the pandemic and all stuff. And so much of this was Andrew Cuomo's, uh, you know, runaway narcissistic ego. He wanted people to see him that way. The only thing you can say he did, he was good on television. People liked the tone of his briefings, right? And this is why I've, you know, ranted about this before, the sheer number of people who are commentators and analysts who can't be bothered with policy. Because, Greg, that's that takes a long time to pay attention. You have, you have to read a lot. You have to pay a lot of attention. No, what they really want to be is theater critics. I loved the performance and all that kind of stuff. And what we now know, and what a lot of us strongly suspected from the beginning, was that Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo, despite having different jobs, were effectively on the same team that Chris Cuomo saw his job as selling his brother to the national audience. And Andrew Cuomo certainly saw his brother as a major asset in that effort. And that there really wasn't any functional line between them. And lo and behold, Andrew Cuomo, having been a notorious sexual harasser, it turns out that apparently Chris Cuomo was a notorious sexual harasser. And that everybody who's been telling you, this isn't, you know, this is normal. This is fine. These are good guys. This isn't a glaring conflict of interest that CNN should have stepped in and addressed very early on. All of those people were wrong. They were wrong from the beginning. And it was folks like you and I and a whole bunch of other conservative commentators who said, wait, a minute, what is going on here? This is ridiculous. This guy is making very big consequential decisions. If you bothered to pay attention besides CNN, there actually were New York media institutions that had covered Cuomo pretty critically. But you weren't going to hear about that in CNN's primetime. So anyway, Andrew Cuomo, like you've heard all the... Uh, uh, the comparisons of him to being the dumb brother and the godfather and stuff like that. Chris Cuomo, the consequences of his actions have caught up with him. He was given a lot of passes. Remember, you know, leaving the uh, quarantine and all of these other sorts of situations. The story of him sexually harassing his boss at ABC News was pretty unpleasant. He sent a note of apology. I don't think the facts are really in that much dispute there. Um, consequences caught up with Chris Cuomo. And that's what makes this a good martini and i wish and i hope and we keep trying to emphasize this on this podcast and everything else we do like ideally it doesn't have to get to this point before the consequences catch up to him that ideally this would kick in much sooner uh it has to remain to be seen but i think this is a particularly shameful chapter in the story of cnn well let's talk about something uh far better than that although it's good to know that cnn does have a threshold but what's way better than cnn or anything involving cuomo's the taste of Omaha Steaks and all their great products. Uh, we love Omaha Steaks. The bacon-wrapped filet mignon is fantastic. The burgers are fantastic. The scalloped potatoes, the chicken, whatever they give you in your box, whatever you order, it's going to be fantastic. But right now you can get a fantastic deal. Go to omahasteaks.com and enter Martini into the search bar to order the perfect gift package. For just $99.99, you get 24 entrees. Think of that, 24 entrees for $99.99. Like the bacon wrap filet mignon, chicken breast, sides, desserts, and so much more. When you use the code MARTINI, you'll also get an additional eight Omaha Steaks burgers free with your order. Now, we know that there are some shortages and supply chain issues, shipping delays going on right now. Don't wait to make sure that delivery gets there for Christmas or, or just a gift uh, for any reason. Order the perfect gift package today at omahasteaks.com, and you'll get eight free burgers when entering our code MARTINI. omahasteaks.com, keyword MARTINI. OmahaSteaks.com, keyword martini. So, so good. All right, Jim, on to our first crazy martini now. And you and I actually uh, discussed this briefly over the weekend at how just how staggering this report from the Washington Post was, uh, quoting staffers, most of them unnamed, of course, um, 
about what it's like to work for Kamala Harris because we've seen this exodus now of relatively high-ranking staffers in the vice president's office. I think we're up to at least three now. We're actually at the point where one guy who hasn't quit tweeted out how much he loved his job. So I don't know if he's looking for a promotion with some of these vacancies or he's just, you know, trying not to get the stapler thrown in his direction. But nonetheless, uh, James Homan uh, with the story and just the two tweets he uses to sum up the story are staggering. He says staffers who have worked for Kamala Harris say one of her consistent problems is that she refuses to wade into briefing materials prepared by staff members, then berates employees when she appears unprepared because she wouldn't do the necessary prep work. He goes on to say one former Kamala Harris staffer puts it this way, quote, with Kamala, you have to put up with a constant amount of soul destroying criticism and also her own lack of confidence. So you're constantly sort of propping up a bully and it's not really clear why. Jim, you and I obviously saw from the way, you know, her few years in the Senate went, uh, not really doing much other than grandstanding how her presidential campaign kind of imploded, how she really didn't add anything to the Biden ticket. There's there's no evidence that she actually helped much. And now, less than a year in, uh, the Kamala mystique, if there was any, is completely unraveling. And it's it's just amazing how much the mainstream media is focusing on this now. Greg, my first, I'll, I'll begin with, you know what I thought when I saw that tweet by the deputy office director who just said about how much he enjoyed working for Kamala Harris and how terrific life was? Right. What? They found one. <laughs> Took a while. But we found one. One person who's happy to work Kamala Harris and we'll get it. Um so there the they had a quote about you know you're you're helping prop up a bully, you know, it's a, like my colleague John McCormick pointed out just how you know brutal and shocking it is. But here's what I think really jumped out about me. And and I'm gonna make you know a exceptionally qualified defense of Kamala Harris here. She's not the first person to be a difficult boss in Washington, D.C. I, I think if you you look on Capitol Hill, you look at past presidents and vice presidents, you look at it, you know, probably Supreme Court, you look any all around Washington, you can probably find a lot of people who can be difficult bosses or who uh, people work for a, a big name, somebody who's prominent and famous. They, maybe they go there with, you know, unrealistic expectations or something and they just don't they just don't mesh. They just don't they rub each other the wrong way people don't like working for somebody who's big and famous and then they kind of walk away with a bad experience it happens it's it is part of the workplace some people are better than others some people are worse than others but by itself this isn't that extraordinary what is extraordinary and i think one of the things that the washington post story really nice job of focusing in on is that this has happened throughout her career so this is not you know like she's in a particularly uniquely difficult set of circumstances as vice president right now um, you have a you have a president who is getting up there in years and is a, probably a de facto lame duck as is. Uh, Kamala Harris wants to look really really good for 2024 if she is the nominee, but the Biden team doesn't want to make it look like she's ready to you know take the baton and you know carry the torch in just a few years from now. Kamala Harris has had these problems in the prosecutor's office as California State Attorney General in the Senate office on the presidential campaign, and now she has them here. So this is not a one-time deal. This is something that's really continuing. But the thing that really stands out and that really is mind-boggling is the person who gave that quote about you feel like you're propping up a bully. Now, it's an anonymous quote. This person did not put themselves on the record. So uh, this person, you know, either doesn't worry, isn't worried about this getting back to them, or they think that, the, you know, their identity will never be revealed. That, you know, Kamala Harris and her team will never be able to figure out who's the former staffer who's angry enough and bitter enough to say something like that. But on paper, Kamala Harris is a heartbeat away from the presidency. It's the heartbeat of a 79-year-old man. 
So at any given moment, Kamala Harris could be the president of the United States. And this former staffer isn't worried about making an enemy out of Kamala Harris. Or maybe they feel like they've already made an enemy out of Kamala Harris. I assume these former staffers, you leave Kamala Harris's office, I assume you want to stay working in democratic politics in one form or another, maybe on the Hill or maybe with an interest group or something like that. Uh, maybe you want to work on another presidential campaign. Like you, you'd think you wouldn't want to get a reputation of somebody who trashes a former boss. I, I had wrote this in a corner post earlier today, and somebody else made the interesting argument of, does Kamala Harris have like bad judgment in who she hires so that these people end up having a bad experience? Maybe they're like, you know, stars in their eyes, millennials who, you know, think they're going to be a trusted advisor and then they're told to, you know, answer the mail or something like that. You know, whatever it is, they feel like they're not happy with their job. And then they not only do they not happy with the job, they leave and they don't have the good sense to say, even though I didn't enjoy my experience, I'm not going to go around and trash my former boss because I plan on working on politics in a long time and I don't need to make enemies. Like, it's really extraordinary to see somebody on the record. Now, the other thing I'm just going to make a note of is that when Vice President Harris stepped into this position in the, in the administration, she did not bring a lot of her Senate staff with her. She did not bring a lot of her presidential campaign staff with her. So I suspect Washington is full of former Kamala Harris staffers who are more than eager to talk to the Washington Post or Politico or CNN or anybody else and say, her team around her sucks. They're a bunch of idiots. And I can't believe she didn't bring me along with her, uh, you know, into, the, into that position. So maybe that's a factor in this. But all in all, just kind of adds to this tone of chaos and the idea, you know, I think that a lot of our listeners probably share that Kamala Harris kind of lucked into this job, uh, that she's actually not that talented as a politician. Her presidential campaign imploded really fast. Uh, her skills as a politician are just not that great. But, you know, Joe Biden had more or less pledged. He was going to pick a woman, and after the Black Lives Matter protest, he was going to pick an African-American woman. And Kamala Harris just happened to be lucky enough to be the most prominent African-American woman who could be Biden's running mate. And now she here she is, and she's really in over her head. And, uh, you know, depending on what the future holds, that could be very dire for the country. Yeah, it could. And it's just puzzling to me, Jim, because, like you said, there have been a lot of lousy and domineering bosses on both sides of the aisle, really. Uh, but usually if it's someone that the media is kind of in love with, for example, Bill Clinton is known later to have a volcanic temper. We didn't know it much during uh, his administration, but he's a guy that the media like to protect, as we might touch on a little bit later in our podcast today. Uh, but it seems like with the frequency of these stories now, it's almost like there are parts of the Democratic Party that wouldn't be all that upset if uh, Kamala Harris uh, had her political star tarnished a little bit, whether it's heading into 2024 or something else, whether it's, you know, Biden folks who don't think she's loyal, Pete Buttigieg folks who think this is the big matchup in 24 if Biden can't run again. Um, whatever it is, it seems like uh, this is getting a lot more oxygen than it normally would for a high ranking Democratic official. What do you think? I absolutely agree. And again, yeah, maybe this comes from the fact that uh, there are so many folks in in Democratic Party politics who maybe feel like you know, she doesn't deserve uh, the position she's in, that, that basically or they think she's going to be a disaster if they nominate her in 2024, which feels plausible, doesn't feel like, a, you know, that she's become a dramatically better uh, political figure uh, and, and just, you know, talented political campaigner than she has been. Uh, she certainly didn't hurt the Biden campaign on the campaign trail, but I don't think she really helped. I think you can say that the outcome of 2020, uh, 
the outcome of the 2020 election was almost preordained with the the pandemic and, and Trump's erraticness and things like that. Um, this, you're right. I, I think that she does have the dimes are out for her. And one of the interesting, th other interesting kind of fact of this is that there is no figure in the Biden administration, not Biden, not Ron Klain, not anybody else, who could like effectively say, everybody knock it off. And if you do, I will, you know, if, if you don't, we're, we're going to punish whoever is, see is caught leaking or caught trashing her or something like that. There's a remarkable lack of loyalty in the Democratic Party, which is kind of uncharacteristic for them, but I think may just kind of reflect a broader, you know, by being anti-institutional um, and believing that, you know, I am more important than the institution, uh, you get a lot more of this. And I think it's, you know, probably everybody's going to face some variation of this challenge of disgruntled former staffers. But man, oh man, you know, Kamala Harris has to have it, seems to have it particularly bad. <laughs> Well, her stock seems to be falling not only with former staffers, but also with the American people. I think the most recent poll was around 28 percent approval, which is staggering for a vice president in their first year. Uh, but when it comes to investments, Jim, uh, diversification, always a good thing, especially when uh, situations with our money are a little bit volatile right now with inflation. Investing in gold and silver could be a great play. For example, the price of silver has increased 340 percent since the year 2000. It continues trending higher, and there's no one we recommend more in pursuing that a potential investment option than Universal Coin & Bullion. Universal Coin & Bullion is offering our listeners a special locked-in price of just $30 for a beautiful one-ounce 2021 American Silver Eagle coin, the most popular coin in the world for collectors and investors. This limited offer is available at dealer's cost because Universal Coin wants you to own the first newly designed silver bullion coin since President Reagan signed the Gold Bullion Act in 1985. Call Universal Coin, the leaders in the precious metals industry, at 1-800-UCB-GOLD to get your beautiful U.S. Mint silver coin for only $30. Postage is free and you can rest assured you'll be dealing with the experts. Experts like Dr. Mike Fulgens, no one better than him to know the industry. He's recognized as America's gold expert by our government. He's the 2021 Coin Dealer of the Year. Uh, UCB also has rare gold coins, but the special silver deal is only available using our code MARTINI. So use the code MARTINI when you call 800-UCB-GOLD. That's 800-UCB-GOLD. All right, Jim, if you don't follow social media carefully, at least you and I think follow it mostly on Twitter, you might not see a lot of attention on the major crime waves that are going on in America's cities now. Homicide rates are way up, but so are massive shoplifting efforts and really organized smash and grab efforts with cars full of people coming up to stores. Everybody floods in. They smash the glass cases with hammers. They grab whatever they can, and they're out of there within a minute or two. And... Um, this is happening all over the place, uh, predominantly in cities where prosecutors had previously taken uh, kind of a lax stand against prosecution. For example, in San Francisco, I think the DA said if it's not more than $1,000, we're not even going to waste our time. Might not even spend a lot of time sending the cops over there. So that gives you a lot of confidence. Walgreens and others uh, pulling out some of their franchises in those areas because it's just not profitable anymore. But so the issue came up at uh, last week, late in the week at the White House press briefing with Peter Ducey of Fox News. Uh, asking uh, Jen Psaki about this because she seems to think that the pandemic uh, is the reason that uh, these things keep happening, not because there's a lack of uh, enforcement of the law. A huge group of criminals organizes themselves and they want to go loot a store, a CVS, a Nordstrom, a Home Depot, 
until the shelves are clean. You think that's because of the pandemic? I think a root cause in a lot of communities is the pandemic, yes. So, Jim, I don't know if she's telling looters to get vaccinated here or what the problem is, but uh, what do you make of this? You know, it, when you have all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. What do you make of Saki essentially saying that, uh, sure, this problem, too, it's all about the pandemic? Greg, she probably should have circled back on this one. Um, the first thing, I, I suppose it could have been worse. I suppose she could have said, look, looters need to understand that what they're doing is dangerous. You should always be wearing a mask both for the virus and to obscure your photo from any closed circuit TV or anything. But also just recognize if you're going to loot and steal lots of stuff from a Best Buy or Home Depot or any of the, or, you know, fancy uh, luxury stores downtown, always remain six feet away from other people. You don't want to catch a virus when you're out looting and rampaging through the streets. Um, look, she would have been better off saying I refer you to the Justice Department on why people are committing these crimes and things like that. Um, is it possible that, you know, across the country, some people... Uh, turn to crime in the desperation of the you know, of the pandemic. I sure I'm sure at some point somebody somewhere did that. Uh, we saw really long lines for food banks and things like that. But by and large, like you know, as I like to point out on this podcast, I think we have like 10.4 million unfilled jobs in this country right now. The actually people are not you know desperately you know oh my where am I, how can I, how am I going to support my family? How can I find a job? They may be struggling with inflation. They may be struggling with high food prices. High gas prices, but but they are you know, generally it is you know the the, the pandemic has been around for two years and we didn't always see these sorts of things in fact when you really started seeing rampaging through streets rioting looting and stuff like that was actually during some of the black lives matter protests last summer now obviously lots of people participated in those protests and did not go looting and rioting and all that kind of stuff but it is hard to shake the fact that since this uh, a new critical tone towards the police the police have a much less uh, aggressive stance towards these sorts of crimes. And also, in some cases, you mentioned the prosecutors have said, you know, we're just not dealing with this anymore. Well, it's kind of the inverse of the broken windows theory. The moment you say we're not really going to prosecute these crimes, we're not going to have serious consequences for them. If people feel like they can clean out the stores, get as much as they want without any consequences, they're going to do it. That, you know, like it, it's a, until there's a deterrent, until there's a risk to it, why wouldn't people go out and do, commit these sorts of crimes? So, you know, this is a case of, you know, uh, Jen Psaki having an answer, you know, uh, because, you know, I think it was AOC who, you know, continued to say, you know, oh, most of the crime we're seeing is people stealing bread. No, it's not. You know, you smash in the windows of a luxury store. You're not stealing bread. You're not trying to support your family. Um, but they have this answer. They have this mentality. And they don't they never want to admit that they were wrong, that actually defund the police was this terrible idea that, in fact, you know that you do need to have, you, you know, is there such a thing as excessive policing? Absolutely. Garner, you know, dying because he was selling loose cigarettes is not a policy anybody would support. But you cannot turn a blind eye to certain crimes without getting more of it. You need to have at least the risk of a consequence to it. And once you take away that consequence, you'll get a lot more of it. Democrats and this administration do not want to admit what they're wrong and when they're wrong, and thus they prolong the problem and it takes longer to get an actual solution. Very well said. Very well said. And the sooner they recognize that, I think the better off we'll all be. Uh, and if they haven't figured it out by now, this is a radically losing issue for them. So um, uh, as long as they keep ignoring this, it's only going to redound to Republicans' benefits, but I don't want to get more votes just because criminals are running rampant in our streets. I want to win because we have better ideas and so forth. But, uh, Jim, as we close today, we have a champagne toast. I'm sure most folks uh, learned yesterday or perhaps today that uh, 
Former senator, former congressman, former uh, three-time presidential candidate and the 1996 Republican presidential nominee, Bob Dole died on Sunday at the age of 98. Um, we knew that this was coming. He announced uh, several months ago that he had been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, uh, had responded well originally to treatment, but obviously at that advanced age, it's a very tough fight. But uh, Jim, we are getting to the age where it's hard to list a lot of people who have just always been around politically, even when you started uh, paying attention at a fairly young age. Uh, Bob Dole, of course, uh, a World War II veteran, uh, shot up by the Nazis in Italy, lost the use of his right arm, uh, basically paralyzed because due to all the damage in his shoulder. Uh, many, many months, I think even over a year uh, in the hospital rehabbing there. Elected to Congress 1960, elected to the Senate 1968. Uh, I believe he held a uh, prominent RNC role during the Nixon administration, which was not an easy job. Uh, became Gerald Ford's running mate in 1976, narrowly lost to the Carter-Mondale ticket. Ran for uh, president in 1980. Uh, Reagan, of course, got that nomination. Ran again in 88. Bush got that nomination. And finally in 96, he won the nomination and then lost to Bill Clinton pretty comfortably in the end. I think it's probably one of the more anticlimactic elections in, in recent memory. Ross Perot was also involved in that one, but more of a footnote. Uh, but Jim, as, uh, as we think about Bob Dole, obviously his service to our country stands out. Uh, but there's three things uh, that uh, I just want to play of Bob Dole clips here. First is, uh, it's not just a caricature of Dole that he used the third person. Here's him in one of his 1996 debates against Clinton. I think the best thing going for Bob Dole is that Bob Dole keeps his word. Uh, you got to love that. Uh, and if you don't remember the 1996 campaign, he was going to give you a nice tax cut. Here's one of his ads. The stakes this election? Keeping more of what you earn. That's what Bob Dole's tax cut plan is all about. The Dole plan starts with a 15% tax cut for working Americans. That's $1,600 more for the typical family. A $500 per child tax credit. Education and job training incentives. Replacing the IRS with a fairer and simpler tax system. And a balanced budget amendment to stop wasteful spending. The Dole plan. Helping you keep more of what you earn. Oh, man, that 90s background music is phenomenal. <laughs> but the most amazing thing about Dole that year in 96, Jim... Uh, as much as you and I, I'm sure, supported him, was that uh, he was always kind of seen as this really serious, dour guy. And then the same week he lost the election, he goes on Letterman and just knocks him dead with his humor. And we got this whole new side of Bob Dole for the rest of his life. And maybe those who knew him well uh, saw this side frequently. I'm sure they did. But publicly, uh, he, he kept that under wraps. And I thought, man, where was that during the campaign? I think that would have helped. Uh, here's just a little bit of a montage of that appearance on Letterman. Late show. Thank you. Bob, what have you been doing lately? Not, uh, apparently not enough, but in any event. I, I had a question for the president. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how about two out of three? <laughs> I, my slogan was a better man for a better America, but I'm going to head for Florida. My slogan's going to be a better tan for a better America. <laughs> So, Jim, yeah, if you've been following politics for a long time, there's a million memories of Bob Dole. What stands out to you? I was going to say, I feel about the passing of Bob Dole kind of the way I felt when his longtime professional rival, George H.W. Bush, uh, passed away. And even though these two guys went at it, hammer and tongs in a couple of presidential primaries, um, you know, you, there's that, that famous image of Bob Dole climbing out of his wheelchair to salute 
George H.W. Bush at his uh, when he was lying in state and this recognition that even though these two guys had some really impassioned rivalries, they absolutely, you know, had a, a respect for each other, two war veterans uh, and all that stuff. I, I'm, we were talking about this a bit earlier today on the, the editors, and I think one of the things that kind of jumps out is, you know, the, like Bush, Bob Dole was a fundamentally decent man and the kind of guy who in a better culture would have been more fully appreciated earlier in his life as the extraordinary human being that he is. You mentioned the, the war injuries and how so many people could have and probably have given into despair when, when faced with that kind of um, just needing to rebuild your body and, and just, you know, what it would feel like to go through lying in that ditch for nine hours, not knowing if you're going to live or die and wondering if your, your life story ends there. Uh, and in somehow Bob Dole ended up not only, you know, becoming this, you know, successful lawyer and politician and rising uh, to the heights of national politics, he did it with this remarkable sense of humor. Um, and I think someone had this very astute uh, uh, recognition that at the heart of a lot of Bob Dole's humor was kind of this tone of uh, as if any of this stuff really matters. Um, and maybe when you've been through what he went through in Italy, maybe it becomes you, you begin to realize whatever you're arguing about on any given political day doesn't really matter. That every day is a gift and that um, whether a particular bill was going to pass. Yeah, you want it to pass. But in the end, you know, who's going to remember this 10 years from now, 50 years from now? Um, and again, I think Bob Dole was always this kind, decent, principled uh, guy with this wickedly fun, dry wit, wicked sense of humor. And none of that came through. And the only thing we heard, if you were paying attention to the uh, most of the coverage of the 1996 campaign, was how Bob Dole was old. Oh, good heavens, he's so old, he's decrepit. Uh, you know, um, all of this disappeared by the time Joe Biden was running for office. Greg, you probably noticed that. Uh, all <laughs> yes. of a sudden, oldness. But you know, you know, Bob Dole not only would have you know lived through becoming the president in you know, two, you know 1996 to 2000. If he'd wanted to been reelected in 2000, 2004, he would be fine. He's, he was running younger than Joe Biden is now, than Donald Trump is now, than Nancy uh, Pelosi is now, and than Mitch McConnell is now. Um, I, I wish the country had appreciated Bob Dole when they had him in there. And I feel like there was a little bit of a, um, once he was no longer a threat to win the presidency, then the mainstream media was allowed to appreciate him. Right. Then they would allow themselves to say, oh, by the way, this guy we've been telling you who's the most horrible person in the whole wide world, he's actually a really great guy, really decent human being, loving guy, and, uh, you know, thoroughly decent. And, you know, again, to have both of these men having lost to Bill Clinton, who, you know, has more than his share of flaws, leaves a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth. Um, so I will, you know, Bob Dole will be missed. I wish everyone had his... Um, Ability to laugh at themselves and ability to laugh at the absurdities of life, even in the darkest of times. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I wish uh, Elizabeth Dole well and the, the Dole family. And uh, again, we probably are not going to see someone like him uh, maybe ever, if not for a very long time. Yeah, quite a legacy, to be sure. So, as Jim said, our condolences uh, to the Dole family, but certainly wanted to take a moment here on today's podcast to uh, look back at his career and the impact that he had. Uh, Jim, we will reconvene tomorrow. We'll see you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks very much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Uh, we are grateful for your reviews and your uh, five-star rankings. Thank you so much for that. Get us on the home devices. Follow us on Twitter at Jim Garrity at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday. Please join us on Tuesday for the next 
three martini lunch. Hi, this is Greg Corumbus, and I'm here with Dr. Mike Fulgens. He's the president of Universal Coin and Bullion. Mike was recently named the 2021 Dealer of the Year by the American Numismatic Association. Mike, given all the uh, economic uncertainty right now, what's your forecast for gold and silver in the months ahead? I think people should immediately get gold and silver in their portfolio now. And if they have it, increase the percentages by 5 to 10%. The World Gold Council recommends a 10 to 20% portion of your portfolio be in gold. It's life insurance for the rest of your portfolio. And I predict gold and silver to be up 10 to 30% by 2022 due to inflation, the increasing debt, and other factors of uncertainty. And uncertainty drives gold and silver. If you think we're going to have more uncertainty over the next year, buy gold and silver. It's going up, in my opinion. Dr. Mike Fulgens is recognized as America's gold expert by the U.S. government. Contact Mike and his team of professionals at Universal Coin and Bullion to own your gold and silver coins now. Call 1-800-UCB-GOLD.